I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. What a sight from the ground cameras at Starbase. We're flying at twice the thrust for the Saturn V heading to space. Hello and welcome to Space Boffins, fashionably late since 2011. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists and I'm Richard Hollingham. I'm Sue Nelson. And this time we'll hear from the European Space Agency's Director of Human and Robotic Exploration, David Parker, about their latest class of astronaut recruits and NASA's Bill Hartwell on working with ESA on the Artemis missions to the moon. This is the first time that NASA has ever entrusted a core element of our flagship spacecraft, human-rated spacecraft, to an international partner. You don't make a commitment to a partnership like that lightly. Our first guest is distinguished Irish science and space broadcaster Leo Enright, who's been covering space for most of his career. Apologies, that just makes you sound old, doesn't it? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm laughing, distinguished uh... I, I th- think you exaggerate somewhat. <laughs> oh, no, you absolutely. You've got a Wikipedia page and everything. <laughs> What's interesting, Leo, is that although many people will know you from your space broadcasting, is that you've also been a Middle Eastern correspondent. I knew you were news correspondent, but I just thought, my goodness, you've been around a bit. Well, I've been around the houses, Sue, but, you know, I guess, you know, you're much younger than me. So I (laughs) I can understand why you're you're struck by my quote unquote CV. Yeah, I look, I have interviewed kings, presidents, despots. I've covered wars, uh, you know, on two three continents and uh, all people seem to want to ask me about is outer space I mean (laughs) I just can't understand that (laughs) but you can really because I I was amazed to discover that you've basically been a commentator on every major space event since the 1960s and that you actually began commentating as a schoolboy. Um, what was that? Was that in your in your room for like Radio Leo? Well, no, actually, I it was from Cape Canaveral. Um, I, I I was uh, I was a kid, and I was fascinated by space, as as most kids of my generation were. I mean, I'm a child of the sixties, and uh, so I, I was determined to see a moonshot. So I worked on summer jobs uh, in Dublin uh, for a couple of years as a teenager. Uh, uh, I was I saved up all my pocket money, and uh, my father, God rest him, uh, was prepared to offer me uh, matching funds, as it were. So if I if I put together enough money uh, myself, he'd he'd uh, contribute for me to go to the last Apollo mission to the moon. Uh, That was Apollo 17. So I I was a snotty-nosed 17-year-old on a a journey through America. I I actually flew into Kennedy in New York uh, and took the bus because I couldn't afford anything else. I took the Greyhound bus down to Florida for the launch. And then I took a Greyhound bus after the launch from the Cape over to Houston 
which took the best part of three days. So it took me as long to get from the Cape to mission control in Houston as it took the Apollo 17 astronauts to get to the moon. <laughs> you actually got in and got to see see the launch? Oh, yes. I was at the Cape at the press site, uh, and I, be I believe I still hold the record as the youngest accredited foreign correspondent of, you know, in America. That, that's my claim. And I, I believe I'm, you know, open to correction. But until somebody comes forward to uh, challenge it, uh, that's my claim. That is extraordinary. So who, who heard or who read w what you produced from that? Well, I was working for two people, really. I was working for the Irish Independent, uh, which is still publishing. Um, it was they, in fact, who gave me the credentials. Uh, uh, Bill Shine, who was a tremendous news editor, uh, absolutely legendary figure uh, in the Irish Independent. Bill Shine lived up the road from me. And, uh, you know, that's how things are done in Ireland. It's still the case, you know, if you if you know somebody. So uh, Bill wrote me a letter of credence. Uh, so I, I wrote for them. But I also uh, I also did television for RTE. Uh, and that was interesting because, of course, that was long before satellite communications, uh, uh, you know, uh, transatlantic communications. So what happened was they were roving around the press site, the uh, American Information Service, the American State Department's press office, as it were, had a camera crew who wandered around the press site looking for reporters who couldn't afford a camera person. And so they stood me up with the rocket behind me and I did a piece to camera. They put it in, uh, in a, you know, it was a, this was film not video, this is long before videotape, they put the video into a can, uh, the film into a can, and they air freighted it back to RTE. So uh, it, it was broadcast a couple of days later. You know, it came in on the Aer Lingus flight overnight from uh, from New York. So that's how, I, uh, that's how I did my first TV broadcast. That's an extraordinary story. I mean, what was it like you know, rubbing shoulders with these, you know, the, these legends of American broadcasting, like, you know, Walter Cronkite and these, you know, particularly with this, you know, the history around Apollo 17 being the, the last uh, crewed mission to the moon. Well, it was deeply embarrassing, Richard, is <laughs> all I can say. Uh, I presume you, you, you read somewhere the backstory to this, because I think that's the only reason you would ask this question. <laughs> I, 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 was, um, I was at the Time Life Party. Uh, you know, a, a moon launch was a bit like the Oscars. Everybody was there. I, I, I seem to remember talking to Paul Newman uh, at the Time Life Party. And um, there were, oh, everybody was there. Uh, it was just amazing. And for a kid of 17 uh, from Ireland to be in the middle of all of this was just uh, literally, you know, you can just, you can picture it if you imagine somebody being at the Oscars parties. Uh, this was exactly what this felt like. And uh, somebody said, why don't you meet Walter Cronkite? the legendary Walter Cronkite. And I, I said to them, oh, well, look, hey, I've met everybody else. I might as well meet Walter Cronkite. So they brought me over and they introduced me to this guy and said, you know, Walter Cronkite, this is Leo Enright. I shook his hand very warmly. 
And I said to him, Mr. Cronkite, I'm delighted to meet you. What do you do? (laughs) Now, you have to understand that I was a kid from Ireland. We didn't have American television. I mean, okay, we had Rin Tin Tin and Lassie, but we didn't watch American TV news. I had never heard of Walter Cronkite. I mean, I knew uh, Patrick Moore, of course, because we got BBC. Uh, I knew James Burke. Uh, Both Patrick and James went on to become very dear friends. And uh, James is, is very much still with us. So I, I knew the the big the big people in my life were Kevin O'Kelly uh, in RTE. Kevin was the legendary RTE commentator on the Moonshots, uh, and Patrick and James. Those you know they were my mates. But this guy Cronkite, I'd never heard of, and Cronkite had two heavies on either side of him. And these guys, I mean, it, it was really bizarre. They clearly decided that anyone who asked Walter Cronkite what did he do for a living was clearly barmy. So they, the two of them literally lifted me up by my arms and walked me out of the Time Life party and threw me out the door. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Um, obviously, it, it that wasn't the end of your career that involves the the space side side of things and you you've kept the space up i know you say you you know covered wars and uh, and everything but obviously for space boffins um it's probably another entire program we could do just on that alternate side of your career but what for you has been the most memorable or um, either meeting somebody from the space industry or maybe a broadcast? What for you is the one that you still look back at and think, wow, I met X or I was there when? Oh, I I think unquestionably, Sue, it would be Voyager. I mean, it's simply, you know, I, I look back across my career and of course, you know, Voyager dominated, uh, you know, the entire, uh, you know, fourth quarter of the 20th century. It it was just the most amazing scientific endeavor that I've ever covered. Um, And I was very fortunate to have been at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory for every single flyby of the Voyager series. So without a shadow of a doubt, it would be Voyager. And, uh, you know, when it comes to meeting people, can I be absolutely blunt with you? Yeah. I'm not... A space fan, you know. I'm, I'm not. I'm not a fanboy. You know. I meet these people. I interview them. You know. My job is to hold these people to account. They're spending the taxpayers' money, and so I. I don't look at these people in awe. Look, I do admire and respect what they do. Absolutely, there's no question about that. But I've never looked for a selfie with an astronaut. You know, it's just not my thing. Uh, I, I I believe that my job is to be objective. And, uh, you know, the moment journalists drop the objectivity, we're in danger. Uh, and we've done it, I admit myself, I have done it on a number of occasions where we have fanboyed and fangirled uh, pro- projects which we should have been screaming from the rooftops uh, about their failings. Uh, and this this is really a you know a big 
bugbear of mine that, uh, you know, I, I'm not a fanboy. Uh, I admire these people. And if you were to ask, you know, if I was pushed as to, you know, who are the most interesting people that I've interviewed, unquestionably the planetary scientists. Yeah. I mean, every single woman and man among them that I have met have been fantastic individuals, hugely dedicated, and most of them love a pint. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I must admit, I, I agree with you about uh, the more interesting people are often the ones who work behind the scene. And I'm just wondering whether I should delete all my selfies with Tim P. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's, that, that verges on the sinister yeah. sometimes. Um, it is a really, I, I think you raise a really interesting point because I think we tread a, a very fine line. And I, I liken it to sports journalism where the sports journalists, and they call themselves journalists, are often very pro a particular club and overtly will talk, you know, on the BBC that you'll hear presenters talk about their their club. And that's not in any way objective. And I know, you know, we're definitely guilty of being space fans while covering it. And it's a very difficult well, line to with, tread. But Leo's right, though. At the same time, I, like you, will always try to be objective. And I do remember working on Newsnight for the, the BBC and doing a piece on um, what was then, I think, the British National Space Agency. I'm not sure they had become the UK Space Agency just yet. And it was critical um, about the selection of a particular mission. And I was saw it as a sort of mark of I've done my job right when the people who, you know, give me lots of interviews, have gave me great access all the time. I suddenly heard one of them say, where the hell is Sue Nelson? Why did you see that? And they were furious, absolutely furious. And I thought, well, yeah, I'm not your PR person. I've still got to say the things that you might find uncomfortable do you think it's harder now to to do that to to be objective leo i'm thinking of a piece that i wrote um the last couple of years and uh, a radio program i made uh for uh bbc future which questioned the need for astronauts and the flack <gasps> i got yes flack i got i mean i've written three thousand pieces about how wonderful space is and how wonderful astronauts are I'll write one piece that's got some criticism and it, actually i was just reporting i wasn't it wasn't me it wasn't my voice it's for the bbc you can't do that uh, do you think it's harder now and you've got to be a bit more uh, robust you've got to have that armor to it's to PR be able to companies. say look we are we are objective we are this is what we are just reporting the news yeah i think so i mean the the thing that i find interesting is that um You know, a lot of the quote-unquote competition out there, the people that are being interviewed uh, on mainstream, uh, you know, high audience programs, you know, I find that, you know, much more frequently now I'm competing against people that I would class as fanboys or fangirls. Uh, And, you know, they often get on uh, when I feel like I could have contributed more. Now, you know, that does sound a little bit, uh, you know, frankly, uh, arrogant. But, you know, I listen to these people and they're so excited. Yes, that's great. But, you know, they don't mention all, you know, other things like, you know, uh, the thing went over budget or, you know, stuff like that. And also, I mean, there I sometimes get quite annoyed with colleagues uh, in the BBC as much as anywhere else. 
you know, who ring me up. Now, take an example. The World Service rang me there some years ago and said, Leo, would you do a, come on and do a phone in? Uh, you know, one of these World Service global phone-ins uh, about medical experiments in space on animals. And I said, sure, of course, yeah, I'll do that. So the other person on the show was from PETA, the uh, the animal rights uh, campaign group. And the PETA person, there was steam coming out of her ears talking about the uh, Biosat experiments that are, were flown by the Europeans and the Americans aboard Russian uh, spacecraft because they couldn't get clearance to do the same missions themselves. And uh, the producer was ballistic afterwards because I agreed with the Peter person. They were absolutely <laughs> right. But it was a complete and utter disgrace that they were sticking probes into the brains of primates and flying them into space. So, uh, you know, sometimes our own colleagues misunderstand us and think that in a way we're kind of fans. But your point, Richard, was exactly right. I always think of myself like a sports reporter. You know, if I was a, a, a sports reporter, I would be reporting on doping. So, you know, I would expect equally when I'm doing space, they won't be doping, but there's a lot I can do that it needs to be done. I want to ask you some questions about Ireland in space. But for that, I just think that as well on the history, we ought to just mention um, Skylab because Skylab for me was the, the sort of moment when I really got into to human spaceflight and reporting human spaceflight. And then, you know, you just see those... Just remember those... I can remember on Blue Peter, those extraordinary pictures of the astronauts floating in this enormous space. And now it's 50 years since Skylab, which um, again makes me feel very old, um, but but that was almost a, a turning point, wasn't it? I think Skylab from the race to the moon to actually we can move into space, we can uh, as humans operate in operate in space, live in space, uh, and and start to use space. Yeah, I think uh, Skylab. I, I, I vividly remember it, uh, and as you say, it, it does kind of date date us. Um, <laughs> I, I did find it very difficult to get news uh, stories on about Skylab. Obviously, Skylab 2, We Fix Anything, uh, that, that was a, you know, a, a big story when they had to rescue the space station and uh, this extraordinary umbrella that they built. Uh, they, they, they literally, you know, there was a, a woman seamstress whose name actually is up at the moment around on social media. And there are pictures of her sewing this thing together uh, in a building in Houston uh, across the road from the Manned Spacecraft Center. But I, I found it very difficult to get stuff on because it was a bit geeky, quote unquote. But my God, when Skylab re-entered, uh, you know, I was leading bulletins for three, four weeks. Um, it was just insane. Uh, and it was the early days of kind of global communications where we could actually get, uh, we could get pictures from Australia. We could, you know, and I could get information uh, in, a, in a timely way uh, about re-entry uh, windows and stuff like that. So we were able to give a blow-by-blow -blow account of the re-entry of Skylab in a way that we couldn't cover stuff uh, almost, you know, before that. 
That's an interesting point, though, there about how you couldn't get coverage for what has got to go down in history as one of the most dramatic rescue missions of all time, with some crazy stuff going on in space. And yet, when there's a, a tiny chance of a little bit of a space craft hitting someone on Earth, it becomes this major news story. And that's all people remember. A lot of people remember Skylab 4. Yeah, I mean, talk to Mike Fole about it. <laughs> you know, I mean, he made his name by nearly getting killed aboard the Russian space station when, uh, when, when a when a progress vehicle uh, collided with it. Um, you know that that's you know true, it, but it's I, I guess it will always be thus. Um, you know, we it's a bit like uh, you know the White House press corps when they follow the president around. You have no idea, guys, no idea how seething and angry the the White House press corps were being dragged to Ireland this year uh, with uh, Joe Biden. They hated every minute of it because there was no news. But they were forced to sit through every single Irish, uh, you know, Kamalia event, you know, kiss the Blarney Stone. <laughs> they had to sit through it just in case someone took a pot shot at Joe Biden. And unfortunately, it, for the same reason, I have to watch every single spacecraft launch just in case. Mm. Yeah. I'm just going to um, mention the uh, woman you were referring to who was sewing and helped do a crucial repair to the Skylab shield was Eileen Baker. And I know this because I made a, a radio doc about the women's seamstresses, mostly ah. predominantly women, called yes. Hey Sisters, Sew Sisters. Wonderful. And her, she's no longer with us, but oh. her fa- her son, sorry, Herb Baker, um, who worked at, at, at NASA and still does so much um, space-related um, work and continues to do so. He he came on the program to talk about the work that his mother had done. So if you're listening, oh, Herb, it's, it's nice to uh, nice to hear a reference to your mum uh, to your mum again. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Uh, let's just talk then about Ireland in space because you've just written a piece in a Space Chronicle magazine which is one of the British Interplanetary Society magazines about Ireland in space um, and, and I mean you you say that it's a history that often gets forgotten but I quite like this that Ireland could claim to be the first nation even before Ireland existed as a nation in astronomy with these um, these Neolithic discoveries Oh yes, I mean Newgrange uh, which is the the ancient burial site uh, on the banks of the River Boyne uh, is an extraordinary place. Uh, it it is uh, just the most amazing monument. It uh, it was it's five hundred years older than the Great Pyramids of Giza. This thing is very very ancient. It's a thousand years. Uh, older than the blue stones, the, the famous big stones at Stonehenge. Uh, you know, this this thing was produced by an ancient civilization that we know virtually nothing about. We don't know their language. We don't really know their beliefs. But we do know at least there is re- quite good authority. Uh, I'm being a little bit cautious here because uh, the story of the light box at Newgrange, uh, which is well, well reported and quite good authority to support that this light box, which lets in light of the at the winter solstice, 
the sun shines down the passage of this tomb at Newgrange. It was designed 5,500 years ago by the first farmers in Ireland. The first people to farm in Ireland had just arrived in the country and uh, they built this, uh, it is postulated, so that they would know the seasons. Uh, and so I maintain that the Irish Neolithic uh, builders were in fact uh, Europe's first astronomers. And now Ireland's about to launch its its first satellite this year. Is it a bit late into the the space? You know, it's had five thousand five hundred years to to get a satellite up. Is this is it catching up with what the rest of Europe? I mean, Ireland's long been a member of the European Space Agency, but is this a, a sort of catch up now with the satellite industry? Well, not exactly, Richard. The way I would answer this as a true Irishman um, is that, uh, you know, Europe caught up with Ireland uh, in the 20th century. <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're really only just, you know, it's, a, it, we're, it's kind of, you know, hopping forwards and back, as it were. Um, Ireland was mission control for the, for the world's exploration of the cosmos for most of the Victorian era. The huge telescope at Burr in County Offaly, I mean, in the, literally in the middle of a bog, uh, this guy built a huge telescope. It was the biggest telescope in the world for 50 years uh, in the 1800s. Uh, and astronomers flocked there from around the world to uh, explore the universe. It was overtaken, obviously, at the end of the 1800s by bigger telescopes. But, uh, you know, it's a, it is truly the grandmother or the grandfather uh, of the Webb telescope, uh, the, the Leviathan of Parsonstown, as it's called. Parsonstown was the old um, Victorian name for, for Burr. But um, yes, we've we've had a quiet period <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, we're kind of picking up now. Uh, the first Irish experiment in space was back in the early 1960s. An Irish experiment was launched aboard an American spy satellite, one of the Corona series. The Corona satellites, they were described as science research satellites, but of course they weren't. They were film cameras in space, weren't they? Exactly. They were yeah. spy satellites. And these cameras were, the, the film from the cameras was returned from the satellite uh, by parachute. And the Irish experiment was inside one of these capsules that came back. It was a, a cosmic ray detector. And the, the experiment arrived back in Dublin and they rang the space uh, people in America and said, please, sir, could you tell us, sir, what was the thickness of the wall of the capsule uh, that our experiment was in? Because we can't analyze it unless we know the thickness. And the American said, well, sir, I'd have to shoot you if I told you. <laughs> so um, so the first Irish experiment in space didn't work out so well. Uh, but th they went on to land a similar instrument on the surface of the moon on Apollo 16. And the LDEF, the Long Duration Exposure Facility, which was uh, one of the biggest, I think the second bi biggest formally experiment ever flown on the space shuttle, uh, was actually mostly uh, Irish. It was uh, a huge cosmic ray detector uh, for the detection of heavy cosmic rays coming from galaxies. I call them messengers from distant galaxies. 
Lovely. And of course, there's been um, Irish involvement with missions like Soho and... Uh, yeah, mo- a lot of our, a lot of ESA missions, yeah, it's a long list. Yeah, I, I did do some research. Yeah, yeah. oh, good, 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 good. <laughs> um, and at the moment, you're, at, you're speaking to us from Darmstadt in Germany uh, for a, a specific reason relating to Mars Express. So this is oh. Darmstadt's the uh, European Mission Control. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. After JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, I would have to say that uh, my favorite space center is ESOC, as we call it, the European Space Operations Center he- here in Darmstadt. Um, I've uh, hugely fond memories uh, of uh, spending time here at uh, many uh, a mission uh, over the decades. And uh, it's lovely to come back to look back over uh, with old friends to look back over 20 years of Mars Express. It launched in May of whatever 20 years ago was what, 2010? 2003. 2003, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not good at maps. <laughs> it launched in 2003. It actually arrived at Mars on Christmas Day. Uh, 2003. And uh, a lot of people from that mission are going to be here today. And I'm really, really looking forward to catching up because Mars Express exceeded so much exceeded our expectations. It's been a a huge success and uh, all credit to everybody involved. But particularly, I have to say, the uh, the imaging people, Uh, they they really did a a fantastic job of uh, presenting us with amazing pictures uh, of the Martian surface from orbit. Um, But but some of the science experiments, too, have been really exciting. Yeah, so now I'm feeling old because uh, you were there. I was there as well, I think, for that and, and reported for for the BBC. Oh, I think you were at well. the Royal Society I was in at London. The Royal, yeah, it's, for the uh, um, for, for one the, of them, for the landing for Beagle. For the, yeah, it's um, gosh, it's amazing, isn't it? When you um, <laughs> you sort of judge your life and you, and it's look like looking through photographs, and you suddenly think, oh yes. I was here. Oh yes, I saw that. Oh yes, I remember that when it first came out. But it's a, it's a nice feeling, isn't it? And I know you keep saying, you know, I'm not a space fan. I'm not a space fan. But the fact that you've kept doing space means, in some way, that it obviously holds a strong area of interest in your heart, shall we say? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I, can I? Richard mentioned uh, Beagle. Mm. Uh, the the uh, you know the the. The British uh, uh, lander, lander that was attached to Mars Express, yeah, yeah. exactly, yes. And I, I can I be honest and tell you about what I think was my worst judgment call ever? Of course, well, yeah, great. Uh, <laughs> when uh, when Mars Express went into orbit, uh, at the same time they released Beagle, the Beagle lander, and a lot of people uh, here. I'll be honest with you, you know. Sotto voce, a lot of people here at ESOC would have said to me at the time, ah, you know, look, it's just, um, it's make weight. We, we, needed, uh, we needed ballast. And so, you know, we let the Brits put this little thing on the side of the, the spacecraft. And to be honest, I bought a lot of that uh, vibe. And so I'll be completely honest with you. I decided, uh, the BBC asked me to go to uh, ESOC for the, uh, for the Beagle landing, and I took my holidays. 
I, I didn't. I decided that I didn't want to be associated with uh, something that was definitely I felt going to fail. And so I, I sat with my Christmas pudding and watched my, some of my colleagues uh, reporting on this failure and look all looking glum and thought to myself, oh, my, wasn't I smart? <laughs> However, a screen goes wavy and images emerge in the not so distant past of Beagle on the surface yeah. of Mars and within ace of actually succeeding. It did not fail. It didn't crash and burn. It successfully landed on the surface of Mars. And the only thing that failed was a solar panel that didn't open. I know, it's so and frustrating. really, you know, I feel I'm quite ashamed of myself because I really did like Colin Pillinger. And that's and a I won't, chief I won't scientist on that. that. Yeah. I really liked Colin Pillinger. I think we all did. Yeah, and you I could not like him. Yeah, well with him, But I just, you know, I was convinced that this was uh, a quixotic adventure. And I was so wrong. So my apologies uh, to Colin uh, if he's watching from some distant <laughs> galaxy. Oh, it's funny you should say that because obviously the late Colin Pillinger, I'm just going to reach across the desk because I found and I'm holding in my hand, I might put it up on um, Twitter and Facebook. I just was clearing out things and found a postcard and it's of Colin in a, on a sledge. I'm not sure who he's being pushed by and he's in the most wonderful sort of Scandinavian style woolly hat and sweater brilliantly patterned and he signed it <laughs> i don't know what he did i don't know why i've got it how i got it maybe he just sent it to me with his book or something i don't know so i picture. actually you know yeah. have colin pillinger right in front of me right now yeah there's a little sidebar to that to that story because i i think i probably covered the anniversary um 10 years ago it would have been and I asked one of the engineers was working then at then called Airbus about any regrets about Beagle. He said his one regret was putting the radio antenna beneath the solar panel rather than on the outside. Because if it had been on the outside, we almost certainly would have got pictures back. There are probably pictures of the Mars surface in the lander. It's just that last panel that failed to deploy. So we never got any signal back to Earth. All right. So for you, Leo, for the foreseeable future... You're just going to keep on covering those missions for us? Oh, yeah, I hope so. Uh, you know, as long as the gods allow me, um, I certainly do uh, intend. I mean, I you will gather from, you know, I think the people listening will gather from the entire conversation since we, we've kind of glossed over the human spaceflight side of this, uh, where my passions lie. And, uh, you know, really, I am looking forward to some of the outstanding missions that are currently en route. Uh, you know, I, I certainly hope to live long enough to be able to report, uh, for instance, on the worst named European mission in the history of European missions. Juice. The Juice <laughs> <laughs> mission. Uh, it, it's arrival uh, of Jupiter and the, the Irish uh, involvement in that. We've got a, an involvement on the radio science uh, uh, instruments. And also, you know, these these moons of Jupiter, uh, really another Irish connection, of course, because we only know about the the 
uh, oceans beneath the surface of these icy moons because of Connemara chaos, which uh, Randy Tufts, who was the uh, one of the scientists working uh, on the original uh, missions, spotted these things that he identified correctly as icebergs frozen uh, into the landscape of Europa. And of course, icebergs only float on oceans. And so that was really the first uh, indication we had of oceans uh, at, at uh, Jupiter and subsequently at Saturn. And they, they named that discovery site, the site that kind of led the way to these uh, ideas, they, they named it Connemara because it looked like Connemara marble. Oh, gosh. And what about the Artemis missions? Are you are you looking forward to them or or do you feel very much a sort of, well, I, I was there when it all happened first time round? Well, no, I, I definitely, I, I, I do not kind of feel a sense that uh, the best is behind us. I, I have a very strong feeling that ultimately uh, the Artemis program and the other programs that are being proposed for humans back to the moon and then on to Mars uh, will happen and they will be extraordinary when they do, uh, not least because, you know, the, the polar missions are going to be just extraordinary. My only worry as a, as a TV is, I mean, my, my heart is in radio, uh, but I, I do TV as well. My only worry is the, the pictures uh, from uh, that part of the moon. I'm rather worried uh, that the pictures are not going to be great because of the sun angles. The, what is largely overlooked in all the talk about this and often not properly captured in the artist's impressions uh, is the extreme sun angles that astronauts are going to be working with. Uh, they will literally have to have headlights on their spacesuits so that they can see in case they trip over something because of the, the shadows, the long shadows that will be obscuring their view of the ground. I have a fear now that those long shadows will just promote a second round of uh, conspiracy theories in terms of the Hollywood lighting or something like that. But uh, we'll deal with that when it happens. Hollywood would light it better. Yeah, Hollywood would light it better, yeah. yeah. Well, um, Leo Enright, thank you so much for joining us. There's so much more we could probably talk to you about, but it's been lovely to just get a brief glimpse into your continuing extraordinary career i think distinguished space. was the right word i think distinguished <laughs> yeah. definitely right thanks well it's, it was lovely to talk to such uh, distinguished colleagues oh. <laughs> now you've degraded that <laughs> thank you leo this is space boffins do get in touch with us on facebook twitter email podcast at spaceboffins.com or you could write us a letter. Really? That would be lovely, wouldn't it? be <laughs> but, lovely to but, get But we're letter. not giving them an, ad- an address, well, a snail mail address. Yeah, it's on um, the Boffin Media website. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't realise that. Yeah. Boffinmedia.com, uh, boffinmedia.co.uk for all use... your podcast and radio needs <laughs> and if, videos. Um, what if they use uh, a stamp within the UK that's got the Queen's head on and no barcode? Ah. We've got until July, haven't yes, you, that's right. to re- you got, you can those. You can do that. You know, yeah. actually, you I'm not seen a, I've not, have the stamps with Charles Head come out yet? No, we've got ones with the Queen's Head and the barcode. And a barcode. Yeah. And so eventually there'll be a transitioning yeah. period mm. to King's Head and a barcode. Yeah. Yeah, Will stamp- anybody still be sending 
post with well, stamps send us, on. Send us a letter. That would be so lovely. I, well, as we you would know, feature, I love look, letters. I would dedicate five minutes of the podcast to that letter if we had a letter. <laughs> yeah. Well, as you know, I'm I'm somebody who who still writes thank you cards and sends them. I think that's very, I think it's boxes. a civilized way of doing it. Yeah. Uh, I do, and still sends Christmas cards yeah. instead of an email or, or one of those jingles. I yeah, I'd much rather have that. Anyway, if you listened to last month's podcast, apart from NASA's new head of science, Dr. Nicola Fox, we also heard from two ESA astronauts. There was the new recruit, Pablo Alvarez, and the more seasoned Alexander Gerst, who will also be helping the latest additions with their training. So I'm going to still be an active astronaut in the European Astronaut Corps, but at the same time, between missions, what we astronauts typically do is we use our experience that we gained in space uh, to help out other programs or to help out colleagues. Like in my case, I'm going to be uh, the lead of the astronaut operations team at the European Astronaut Center, and that means I'm going to work with our new colleagues, the new astronauts that uh, will join ESA to start basic training. That was Alexander. Now, I gathered those interviews during a trip to Bremen in Germany when there were three European service modules for the Artemis missions in a clean room at the same time. And we promised you some more interviews from there. So let's begin with someone who has a vested interest in what Pablo, Alexander and all the other ESA astronauts are training for alongside the ISS missions. It's David Parker. ESA's Director of Human and Robotic Exploration. And I began by asking him if there'd been a different selection process with the new cohort of astronauts, knowing that at least one of them could perhaps also be going to the moon. Well, most of the selection process has been uh, pretty similar to what was planned. Uh, we had a good idea we'd get a, a lot more applications. So actually the just having enough people to process and then interview and do all of the uh, selection procedures was a bit more complicated. But uh, yes, of course, in this group of people, we were had our, it was a higher probability that some of them will one day uh, fly to the moon, work on the moon, maybe even go to Mars. Um, it's also going to be true that, that for these astronauts, their first flights will definitely be to the ISS, and our gateway missions are likely to be assigned to the current group of astronauts, the ones were selected in 2009. And in terms of the success of Artemis 1, have there been any aspects of that where you've either had to tweak any ideas in terms of you know, what you're planning? Well, the thing about Artemis 1, it was, it was absolutely a test flight, a bit like test flying a new aircraft. You push, as they say, the envelope. You push the limits of the, uh, of the flight characteristics, the way of operating it, not because you necessarily plan to do that with the astronauts, but because you want to have the margins of comfort and safety regarding the performance. It was good to see that the, uh, the power generation was above uh, predictions, and the propulsion system, which is, in, as a propulsion engineer myself, incredibly complicated uh, and sophisticated to give the safety for astronauts, worked really, really well. Um, uh, there are always snags. You don't expect everything to work perfectly. So there's a, a particular sla a snag which has been uh, identified re relating to the, the way the power conditioning unit is connected to some of the valves. So we got 
inadvertent operating of certain valves, but then we just command them shut again. So we need to get to the bottom of, the, of what that was about. How serious is that? I don't think I view it as very serious because if it had happened in an actual mission, very simply a red light would have gone on and somebody would have pressed a button to, to close a valve again. Um, it, it, it could be well be some sort of electromagnetic interference. So we, this is the thing where you have a lot of different electronic devices and cablings in the same area and sometimes you with small, uh, very small signals, um, one one device can interfere with another. So it's all on the test rig now, on the test bench, starting to investigate that. On the safety aspect for astronauts, you know, one lesson that was learned from the Apollo missions was Apollo 13 in terms of engineering ingenuity and finding solutions to problems that you hadn't necessarily expected would happen is are, are there any redundancies where astronauts could shelter or or to you know for if any way whether it's micrometeorites or whether there's a you know a more serious problem the vehicle as i said has a great deal of redundancy particularly in the propulsion system so what do i mean it means there are two sets of thrusters there are often four sets of valves so the possibility to cross strap between different sides of the sides of the propulsion system so if one device stops working there are multiple other ways of making sure the propulsion system keeps working because that's the most fundamental thing to get at home safely um, but yes absolutely there will be operational ways of um, orienting the spacecraft um, to give higher protection in the event of a, of a, a suspected uh, meteorite risk or particularly with respect to radiation considerations um, the solar arrays are um, very nearly twice as much re as required to generate the power required to support the crew. And of course, what we didn't have on Artemis 1 that we will obviously have on Artemis 2 is actually the water and gas tanks to, su to support the, uh, the astronauts themselves. And in terms of this sort of duality of, in terms of your job, sort of robotic and human spaceflight, they're often seen as sort of contradictory in terms of one might you know, outmaneuver the other. Do you see this very much as a, a partnership and a continued partnership? Yeah, I always say that uh, human robotic exploration are absolutely synergistic. It's the same thing when somebody tries to tell you that Moon is more interesting than Mars and Mars is more interesting than Moon. No, I don't think that's true at all. The reason for doing exploration is eventually to get humans to that destination and to uh, use it for science or technology, or as we are moving with low Earth orbit, a place for business. There will be commercial space stations, commercial research, obviously commercial tourists going into, into space. We're a long way from that with the moon, but if we want to, for example, drill 100 metres down to find the paleoregolith's ancient material from the impact of the, uh, of the predecessor of the moon, with the Earth that might be buried uh, deep down on the surface of the Moon, we're not going to have a drilling rig that's going to be assembled by robots anytime soon. The training, which part of it do you think is potentially going to be the most useful for those who may find themselves on the lunar surface? Well, in a sense, we've been starting to prepare our ESA astronauts and indeed international astronauts for lunar exploration for quite a while. So we have this uh, program called Pangea or Pangea, where uh, we are 
teaching astronauts how to be geologists, how to go uh, into unfamiliar environments and find the, the interesting rocks, the material they need to get the right samples. We're also thinking about how to extract material from the moon to use in, in material generation. So some of our explorers are in the labs, but they're starting to pass on their knowledge to, to the, uh, the astronauts themselves. And Antarctica plays a, a role in this as well. Well, I always use this comparison of Antarctica being the nearest to a moon base as we have now. There was a race to the South Pole hundred more than 100 years ago. It was 50 years before we really went back there and started building Antarctic bases. So we developed technology, recycling technologies, life support system technologies, and we demonstrate those in Antarctic bases. But we also send a, a medical, a physician there every season to the Concordia base to work on some of the psychological aspects of being isolated, long-duration spaceflight. Antarctica is a good uh, analogue of that. When you have uh, an astronaut corps of incredibly talented, incredibly smart people, very ambitious too... How do you manage expectations in terms of, I'm sorry, folks, but some of you aren't going to get to the moon? This is absolutely true. And actually, it's part of the selection process is actually uh, challenge them with the question, supposing you are recruited into the European Space Agency and you may wait seven years before you fly or you may never fly at all. Are you sure you really want to do this? And so it's absolutely uh, managing the expectations, but it doesn't mean that the astronauts are sitting around doing nothing between the missions. Far from it, they are managing the training, they're doing astronaut work, they're sitting in the control room in Houston, relaying messages up to the space station and back again. Some of them are supporting the development of uh, the Lunar Gateway and then on lunar surface habitats. So they're all kept very, very busy between missions. For Artemis 3, there would be four astronauts, of which two would go down to the surface of the Moon, so we don't expect to be on the first uh, Artemis mission. We have agreed with NASA that there will be three ESA astronauts flying on Orion to the Lunar Gateway to live and work there, and so we expect them to be supporting the, the assembly of the Gateway. That'll be Artemis 4, Artemis 5 flight. Uh, the third mission, uh, TBD at the moment, is to, to be decided, but... Yes, it's absolutely our ambition to get European boots on the moon by the end of this decade. In terms of the first woman being back on the moon, obviously it won't be a European, but how do you feel about that? That's really exciting, and for us, diversity in the astronaut corps is something of great importance. We have diversity because of our different nationalities in the European Space Agency, but something that's been really important for me is also to pioneer the Power Astronaut Feasibility Project. We have the ambition for ESA to have the first astronaut with a disability, and we've selected in John McFall an amazing candidate that we're going to be working with over the next few years. ESA's Director of Human and Robotic Exploration, the ever delightful David Parker. And we, we will endeavour to get an interview with uh, John McFall. You probably saw pictures of him in the um, Vomit Comet. It's not really called that, is it? It's called the Zero G. Zero Gravity. Or my, the, even the Zero. Plane. I mean, the plane, they do call it the Zero G plane, as you know, because, oh, did I mention I yeah, went yeah, up on I it think once? We did. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, but technically speaking, it's. It, Mind you, you are in microgravity in the. Uh, it's a simulation space. of it's microgravity. It's a simulation of microgravity. I mean, um, zero, gravity, zero, zero G plane would be awesome, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> yes, I enjoyed that one as yeah. it was. I'm not sure you would have done because I, I don't. I, I, think I hate, you might have been sick. 
No, I'm not normally sick. Because you guess, don't ter- like even no, fair rides. I'm not sick, just terrified. Oh, okay. I think I actually think it would have been both sick and terrified. No, I, I rarely get sick. I don't get motion mm. sickness. I'd Can be I- fine in space. I just would hate it. Right. I would just like to uh, mention to any long-time listeners to this podcast, you will remember and know what I'm talking about. The centrifuge interview when Rich and I both went on the UK's oldest. I think actually it might be even the world's oldest centrifuge, wasn't it? Working centrifuge. Yeah, yeah. working centrifuge. Uh, when we went on that, you, you've got to go back in the archives to find that if you've not heard that. Because Richard on that centrifuge was hysterically funny. It was basically, think of the Doppler effect with, um, instead of an, a sort of ambulance going, wah, 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 Although that was a sound probably from 1975, an ambulance. It's more like Richard going... What, was it hilarious? It was. Was it hilarious? It was <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, my God. Just thinking about it. Anyway, I better... <laughs> oh, gosh. You finished? <laughs> Oh, uh, it's, so, so it's clearly the funniest thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were supposed to do commentary because I've done I all my. I'm going commentary. up to three point six G. Oh no, I can't. Yeah. I can't lift my hands. And you are, to be fair, you are much better at doing commentary than I am, which is why you often do it for space launches. But your commentary just consisted. Of I'm the fine screen. of comment- commentating <laughs> on other people doing terrifying things oh, is fine, dear. but I'm not doing it. Oh dear! Oh gosh! I might just get that. You know, if ever I feel a bit low, I think I just should just, just get that yeah. on play. Anyway, so uh, our next interview from Bremen is with NASA's Bill Hartwell, who's the Orion program representative at ESA in the Netherlands. And what's especially interesting about this interview, in my opinion, is when we touch upon Russia. But he began anyway by explaining about the main lessons that had been learnt from the successful launch of Artemis 1. Obviously, the rocket was very successful. They have uh, reviewing the data and and the performance of the rocket. But on the Orion, the uh, we put the spacecraft through its paces. And when I say that, it's like you're it's like a test that uh, your your teacher is giving you. You have a specific set of things that you intend to test, and. We completed all of those, and the nice part about it was the teacher said, okay, well, we've got that part. How about I also test you on these things? And so we were able to expand the envelope, which gives us a a lot of confidence, Uh, confidence that the spacecraft is more capable than what is designed for, and that also allows us to expand our capabilities on missions as we go forward. Now, expanding that envelope, let's let's get into the detail there. Sure. What things were there that you know you realized as a, as a team that oh, this is better than expected? Sure. Well, there's some real fundamental ones. The power generation is is we have more power than we were expecting. What that enables us, we have a new mission on Artemis Four for Orion. This is a new function that Orion must be a tugboat to deliver gateway elements, modules, from the joint launch of the Orion 
also what we call, they, we call them co-manifested payloads. So the International Habitation Module is one on Artemis IV. It's heavy, heavy from our perspective in that we are designed to carry 10 metric tons to the gateway and to dock it. So imagine that you are driving a vehicle yourself and you have to take it somewhere. But then imagine that that's, then someone says, okay, well, let's put this 10 metric ton thing on the front of you, and now you have to drive it to where you're trying to go. This takes control authority, and it also takes power for keeping uh, the spacecraft warm. And the spacecraft on the front, the module that we will be carrying, the International Habitation Module, will be in the shade most of the time. And so it requires power to stay warm. And so we have to provide power to this module. And now we know we have more power than we were expecting. And this is a good thing for the overall mission. You, in your previous job, you were working with a number of countries by being program manager with the um, International Space Station. How does this mission, this series of mission, compare to to the ISS? Is it easier or is it more difficult in in other ways, particularly with the political situation that's ongoing, be it Russia or China? Yeah. Well, my experience is working on the International Space Station program, as you said. Largely, my experience has been working with the Russian partners. I was a student in Moscow at the Moscow Aviation Institute. And uh, I arrived at the Johnson Space Center uh, right at about the same time that we were committed, had just committed to building the International Space Station with the Russians. And so for 20 more or more years, I've been leading projects with cooperating with Russia. Um, Many of our projects, I would say, integrate. How closely are you integrating depends on the arrangement of who is doing what. And much of what we've done on International Space Station, I would, I would say, is integration where the, the interface is fairly clear and defined and, and specific. It's not intertwined. What we have done with the European Space Agency and Airbus and with our, our prime contractor, Lockheed Martin, is a much, much more intertwined integration than I have ever, ever experienced in my career. It's much more difficult. And we've been successful. This is what's really, I think, is the achievement uh, that we have made at this point. Why was it more difficult? Well, imagine that you and I were going to go climb a mountain, and I was going to build a car, and I said, would you please build me a trailer? Okay, so we'll, we can talk about, we, we need to talk about how we're going to connect the trailer to my car that I'm building. And that's the kind of integration we've done for much of the International Space Station. We have different modules that connect. Well, in this scenario with the European Space Agency, NASA said, can you please build us the engine and transmission for our car that we are going to take to climb this mountain? So the level of detail that you must go to, to uh, in, in the, it's just much, much more complex. 
It's also a question of trust, of course. And would you say that ESA gained your trust because of its automatic transfer vehicle, which the European Service Module is, is based upon, in that you know it's worked? Yes, so this is the first time that NASA has ever entrusted a core element of our flagship spacecraft, human-rated spacecraft, to an international partner. You don't make a commitment to a partnership like that lightly. The decades of cooperation between NASA and, and the European Space Agency is at the foundation. Uh, the expertise, obviously, in the automated transfer vehicle, delivering cargo in a very extremely accurate, uh, the technologies that ESA developed and implemented on the automated transfer vehicle were spot on and very high caliber. So yes, the, the, it, the, we, we, we built trust. The foundation is there from, uh, from many, many cooperative efforts. The automated transfer vehicle is certainly a, an important element of that trust. One aspect that many, particularly of a, a sort of younger generation, are quite shocked to hear is that, you know, three years after man landed on the moon, the, the program was cancelled. Does that thought ever cross your mind for, for this, that actually there's a huge support? Well, in some cases, people do question why return, but people sort of understand that it's part of human exploration, but political leaders change. Are you sort of budget-proof for what you've got in mind? I think we have a very solid program and a solid footing politically, um, certainly within the United States. We've benefited and uh, enjoyed bipartisan support within the U.S. Congress for many decades, and, and that we don't see changing. Uh, our, our budgets are um, not like the Apollo program, which were extremely sharp increases and therefore, in some respects, not sustainable. So our, our objective is, and, our, and so far our success has been, to have a sustainable budget that we can continue to build the partnership pull in partners to afford other things so that we're not trying to afford all of it ourselves and and also reach out to get the best in that the uh, commercial partners can provide as well. You know, many people think of um, trips to the moon, not just uh, its success in terms of landing on the moon, but even success from things that didn't go quite as planned. Is Orion prepared for whatever may happen, are the redundancies to keep those astronauts safe? This is a, the, a core to what we're doing, right? We, we were, we've already been to the moon. We went to the moon in the 60s and 70s, and the Apollo capsule looks very much like the Orion capsule. They're capsules. They, uh, and so we, in 1969, we had automobiles, and they also look very much like automobiles we have today. They have four wheels, they have a steering wheel, a windscreen, windshield, whichever country you come from, <laughs> perhaps a trunk or a boot, uh, and we have those same things today in automobiles. But the underlying um, technologies in the Orion spacecraft contribute 
massively to the safety and the reliability of getting to the moon and back. Just as if you were driving in a car from 1969 and veered off the road and hit a tree, the chance that you would walk away from that was much lower than if you should crash in a, a car from the 2020s. The, the technology, the safety, it's all part of what the Orion is all about doing, going back to the moon in a safe and reliable way. Why should we return to the moon? Obviously, you can get many different answers. On one end of the spectrum, you have uh, the, the technology that we invest in uh, can be applied here on Earth. And so the jobs, the technical training, the inspiration that it provides for students to, to learn the science, the math, these things are, are it's contagious. Space, something about space really, really inspires. And so to inspire those to bring uh, technical capabilities to our problems that we have here on Earth. And then you have on the far end of the spectrum, you have people that feel that humans need to be a, a, t a more than one uh, planet species for the long term. And I think, I think it depends on your personality where you fall on the spectrum, but I, it's, it's, quite a compelling, uh, it's quite compelling to go to the moon, especially since we're doing it not to go to the moon, but to go to Mars. And, and personally, considering that you have you know, lived in, in Russia, yeah. you must be disappointed about the way things have gone. Uh, sure, yeah. I, I think I have bookended the... Um, the, the very special time that we had uh, cooperating uh, deeply with the Russians. And on a personal note, I have still friends in Russia. And so, yes, it's a, it's a sad time to see that cooperation and the opportunity for future cooperation to, uh, to those doors a bit closing now. But they still remain open? There are people who, uh, when I came to, to NASA in 1993, who were completely surprised that we were cooperating with the Russians. They said, they said, I don't understand how I can be cooperating with these people. I've been pointing uh, missiles at them my entire career. So yes, there's still, there's still possibility. I would think we have some, perhaps an, another decade <laughs> before there'll be uh, new programs uh, started with Russia. NASA's Orion program representative based at ESA in the Netherlands, Bill Hartwell. I do find it weird that we are still cooperating with the Russians. We, in, in I mean the West, mm. with the Russians on the International Space Station. I find it e extraordinary when we're essentially at war with them. Uh, I guess it I, is I, I an find odd it, position. I yeah. find it, you know, I, 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 you know, it's all very well saying cooperating in space and all the rest of it, but I really. I have I do have an issue with it. It's it is difficult because let's face it if it hadn't been for the Russians over the last few decades who knows where we'd be with well, the space frankly, program and particularly with this space They wouldn't station. be a space station. No, exactly. So you've got to sort of give that credit and also it's like I know it's it's incredibly difficult but those astronauts aren't there as working members of the military, although I know, like over here, ESA astronauts, a lot of them are ex-military. Ex I uh, think keeping the politics out of it is a good thing yeah, for space. But, that's, I mean, but whether that's going to continue, I think, is... And I liked, 
I liked the way Bill Hartwell, obviously, you know, it's it's professional and personal to him. And when somebody's lived in in Russia and knows Russians, you don't think of it in such black and white, you know, they're the well, bad guys, think, we're the good guys. Because yeah, but, there are people, as we know, with Ukraine, there are people living in Russia who are anti-war. And, you know, you've got to accept that, that what the government does doesn't represent the entire will of the people. And I understand your point of view, but I'm also glad that they are involved because I think once they're out, that will be really hard to come back from. Really hard. I mean, you know, I've, I've obviously written quite a lot on the Soviet space program, the Russian space program. I was a regular, I used to go to Moscow every year to commentate on launches. I'm a big advocate, you know, for what they've done. And, you know, the International Space Station, the programs I've made over the years, podcasts, You've all the rest of it. almost forgot to make the most, mention the most um, hard-hitting one, which was Space Dogs. <laughs> yes, the Space Dogs book. I've written about <laughs> Space Dogs. But, you know, frankly, with the space station, we wouldn't have a space station if it wasn't for the Russians. They saved. I think I just said that. No, but they saved that. They saved the program because they knew how to build space stations. They had all this expertise in space station. Nevertheless, the situation now with the space station, I think, is I think is untenable. Mm. I absolutely think that got to separate. I don't understand how we can be cooperating. But we're already effectively well. We are separate to China, even though there's well, been... we're not at war with China. Been, no, there's been ESA and, and Chinese cooperation. But a lot a lot of those, um, you know, projects are sort of going I think in, in different directions. I think it's but very, do you really I, want a world where there's China doing its thing, Russia doing its thing, America doing its thing, ESA, Europe doing its thing, and the Middle East, of course, well, with all their, 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 their quite su- successful space programs, and you've got Africa starting to come in. Uh, but India. I think it's all, I think it, it's it's, Orwellian, because I think we're holding contradictory positions. On one hand, we're saying Russia are the bad guys, we need to support Ukraine. On the other hand, we're saying, oh, we'll cooperate in space, because space is different. Space isn't different. Yeah, space but I, is an extension I, of the Earth. I, yes, and I would prefer the earth is a multinational multicultural multilingual place and i would prefer space to reflect that discuss <laughs> <laughs> your thoughts welcome if you've got any thoughts on this on the on social media or as i say you know write us a letter that would be so lovely so if you wrote us a letter uh, this has been space boffins i say do get in touch and um see you again next month see you again next month yeah or the month after or, or Who five knows? weeks six <laughs> yeah, weeks that's right. we're doing our best honestly we've we've had all sorts going on this end haven't we so yeah. uh... we'll, we'll attempt to get back on track with a monthly <laughs> space boffins podcast thank you for your support and thanks for listening